Welcome to the Occupational Safety Leadership Podcast, episode number 122 with Brian Haywood. Um, and on uh, today's today's episode, we're going to talk about confined spaces, both the permit required and the non-permit required confined spaces. Um, before we really get into it, Brian, can you do a little background on yourself, please? Sure, David. Um, so I've been... Uh... I'm a Murray State graduate, proud Murray State graduate, uh, 1993, and um, that was back when PSM standard had just come out. So I spent uh, 16 years in Petrochem, um, being a safety engineer, then safety manager, then safety director, then regional, then corporate, and then in 2004, 2005 timeframe, I uh, started uh, consulting, and I've been consulting uh, since then. So, uh, in primarily work in, uh, I'll just say the process safety circles and anything that's attached to it, uh, all the safe work practices, um, and of course, confined space, lockout, those are the bread and butter safe work practices that we use on a daily basis. So, um, I write, that's mostly what I write about and train on and, and do work around is, um, process safety related matters. Oh, uh, awesome, Brian. Awesome. Uh, I guess for me, I have just a little bit of uh, PSM. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think what chemicals we had again when I worked at a chemical plant. It was formaldehyde, dimethylamine, oh, yeah. chlorine. <laughs> and I, I, can't, I can't remember if I was there when we were phasing in or phasing out ammonia kind of i kind of forgot which one that was again but uh i thought that it was just a fantastic way of doing business uh it really made you sit down and kind of look at your process you know and just mm -hmm. um like literally follow pipes and say yeah. where does this go and where does that go uh not to not to delve too too much into uh bad stories you know but when I first had graduated college, I moved down to Houston, Texas, and uh, the guy that was living next to me, he was a uh, old guy um, for a petrochem plant. And, uh, you know, so I, I get to talking to him, and, you know, of course, he had already called it quits and all that, but he said he was a pointer. And I was like, a pointer? So what does a pointer do? He's like, I go around and I say, about here, I dug some pipes, you know, and we ran them this way, and we did because back then in the 40s 50s and 60s the guys the guys were not really capturing much when it came down to where no. uh, piping ran yeah. and so they would call them back all the all the time and say well you know we're looking to dig we're looking to do stuff you know we need to kind of understand what, what people did you know so yeah. i yeah. found it really really just fascinating to talk to them and when you sit down and think about it they really weren't doing anything wrong by today's standards, of course, it's really wrong and awful, but they were literally just operating the way that, that they were told to operate. So, yeah, they were just doing doing what they knew to do. They yeah. didn't know any better. Yeah, right, 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 right. Exactly. So, um, so I think I'd like to talk about uh, confined space. Um, could you just do just a little bit of background on uh, confined space? Because I've only been part of the uh, permit, the permit required confined space. And as a young man, when I was a lot thinner and a lot more agile, I could really get into those spaces and do stuff. I don't think <laughs> I'd like to do that nowadays, you know. So, uh, but if you could take a couple seconds and talk about the permit, the permit required confined spaces. Sure. So, um, 
using uh, OSHA's 1910-146 uh, standard, uh, as well as their newer, newer, it came out in 2015, but the uh, construction standard on confined spaces, which is 1926-1201 or .1201 through 12, .1213. And they, they follow the same framework. Um, but, you know, the first step in the managing confined spaces is to do your site evaluation. And you have to first determine if the space meets the definition of a confined space. And for a space to meet the de definition of a confined space, that space has to meet three characteristics. Uh, limited means of egress and, and you know, getting in and getting out. Um, not designed for you to be in there uh, continuously, but it's large enough and so configured that you can fit in there and do, and do the work. So that just makes it a confined space. And when OSHA wrote their standard, they basically said, you know, the standard is going to apply to permit required confined spaces. So for a confined space to become uh, recognized as a permit required confined space, it has to possess or have the potential to possess just one of the following four hazards, uh, oxygen deficiency, uh, an explosive atmosphere, um, actually just 10% of the uh, LEL or LFL of the atmosphere has to be achieved for it to be considered hazardous. Um, uh, inwardly converging walls of slope to a smaller cross-section, and then any kind of engulfment hazard, um, and then uh, the um, any other recognizable safety and health hazard. So I, I like to say the four characteristics are, you know, atmospheric, uh, the design, which is the inwardly converging walls that slope to a smaller cross section, and then the contents. If you were in there and it was, um, you know, it had an engulfment hazard, it was would be a finely divided solid that could could engulf you. I also use liquids uh, as an engulfment hazard. So um, that those four things make it a permit required. And we only have to have one of those four. So for it to be a confined space, you have to have all three characteristics, but for it to rise to a level of becoming a permit required confined space, it only has to have one of those four potential hazards. Um, and then once an employer determines that the space is permit required, then the space has to be identified as such. Um, and then the the standards, both standards, give an employer basically three options to enter that permit required confined space. Um, the first one is is what I we call C five. Um, C five is when you have a permit required confined space, and the only hazard that made that confined space a permit required confined space is an atmospheric hazard, and that's a big and it's underlined all capital letters and bolded. And the employer can demonstrate that forced air ventilation can control. That's a big word as well, because we're not talking about eliminating. We're talking about controlling the hazardous atmosphere. So, you know, you got a, a space, you got a blower. You got to make sure that the blower has enough CFM based on the volume of the space and that the blower can maintain at least four air exchanges with fresh air being blown in. We always use positive pressure ventilation in this situation. Uh -huh. So that's C5. And, you know, in, in my 
30 plus years of doing this, I, I r rarely have ever seen a, uh, a permit required confined space where C5 was a legitimate option. Uh, I'm sure there's some out there, but just not much in like a processing unit or a, you know, a manufacturing type facility. So then um, you have what's called C7. C7 is the reclassification from a permit required to one that we call non-permit required. And I'll come back to that one because I'm sure that's the one that everybody wants to, to hear about. But the third option is what we call D through K. So when you look at 1910-146, C5 is the first option. C7 is your second option. The third option is what we call a permitted entry. And that is all the sections from D all the way through K. K is the uh, rescue section. And that is the one that causes most people most heartburn. And in fact, most facilities struggle to do it correctly. Most don't even come close to doing it correctly. Um, but that is what has driven um, the option C7 to become more popular. So when you do when you do C7, the reclassification, you can only reclassify a space that does not have the potential for a hazardous atmosphere. And the other hazards, the, uh, the, the design of the space, the inwardly converging walls that slope to a smaller cross section, the engulfment hazard, um, and any other physical uh, electromechanical type hazards like agitators, augers, ribbon blenders, um, any of these physical type hazards, they are eliminated. Now, not controlled, they are eliminated. So basically, you took a, a, you know, a confined space that had hazards in it, and you've eliminated them such that once you get inside, it's like sitting in your office. There's no hazard. There's no potential for atmospheric hazard, um, which can be tricky because most of the time, the atmospheric hazards are created by the work taking place inside the space, right. not the actual space. Um, and then... Um, you know, there all the other hazards have been eliminated via lockout, tagout, or hazards, hazards, you know, control of hazardous energy. Um, and once you've done that, then C7 basically says you have to document how you eliminated those hazards. And you have to document that there's no potential based on the, the space hazards or the work taking place inside the space that there will not be a potential for a hazardous atmosphere. And when you do that, then D through K does not apply. So rescue uh, requirements um, is nullified. You don't have to worry about the requirements. You don't have to wear a harness. You don't have to have an attendant. You don't have to atmospherically monitor the space. Um, now, I always tell my clients, always at, you know do an initial check and always monitor the atmosphere uh -huh. because you just you just have no idea you know, what could go wrong. And since atmospheric exactly. hazards are the, are the leading cause of death and then you just always monitor it, but you know, you don't have to have a rescue team and a rescue plan. So if you can reclassify, that is the one that most, um, most people are, are most interested in. That's what I spent probably the last 10 years teaching companies how to reclassify. Um, but you know, for, for a facility to reclassify, let's say you have one of your vessels in one of your old plants where you had chlorine, 
Uh -huh. um, and you wanted to reclassify this, this vessel and, you know, for you to isolate that vessel, there's only three acceptable means to isolate the piping and the hoses and the tubing and, and duct work, anything that can convey that chlorine to that space. There's only three acceptable methods. And this is clearly in both standards, but it just seems like it falls off of people's, you know, they, they don't read the whole thing. But you have double block and bleed. You have disconnect and misalignment of piping or tubing or hoses or ductwork. Um, and then you have um, blanking or blinding um, of, of the piping. So everything to that space has to be isolated. And single valve closure, single valve lockout does not meet the, the criteria of what we call positive energy isolation methods. It has to be one of those three methods. Right, and, right. you know, you know the, a lot of my clients, when they're building a new plant, they know they're going to be going in this vessel uh, on a weekly basis for quality reasons. They'll build in double block and bleed, or they'll put slip blinds in, or they'll put spool pieces in so they can properly isolate this space um, in, you know, a couple hours versus, you know, you know, a day of two operators out there. And they, they're designing the safety into the vessel so it's easily um, isolated using one of those three methodologies. Um, and then they can go into it on a regular basis. And it's, it's not, it, you know, they're, they're designing it. They're designing the safety into the vessel because mm -hmm. they know they're going to be going into it. A lot of the old vessels that you and I probably dealt with in our careers, you know, it was single valve. You would have to, you'd have to go a thousand foot down the pipe to find another valve and hope there was a bleed in between those two valves to be able to get a double block and bleed on that three inch pipe going into that vessel. Yeah. It's just, we, we just didn't build processes like that in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s. Um, and now if companies are smart, they will build in the double block and bleed arrangement right at the, the nozzle at the tank. Um, and I mean, some of the designs I've done for clients, it's literally put two block valves in a bleed and then use shark leader or cable. And you can use one lock to secure the double block and bleed arrangement in its safe position. So you don't need three locks. You have one lock and a cable goes through the two closed valves and the mm -hmm. open bleed um, and one lock for that arrangement, or you, you know, put a spool piece in against the nozzle so you can roll it down and you have a three foot gap of pipe and then lock the, put a lock through the, um, through the, uh, um, the bolt, mm -hmm. uh, opening on, on the flange. And now nobody can roll the spool piece back in. So there's a lot of nifty ways that employers can easily isolate the space, but, that's a big miss for a lot of them is they're not isolating the space properly, but then they're trying to reclassify it saying that they've eliminated the hazards and single valve isolation. And I mean, I guess it was last year, maybe the year before um, OSHA actually came out with a letter of interpretation and finally said that single valve isolation is not an acceptable means for uh, entry into a confined space, or I should say a permit required confined space. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, so if, if you're going into a space and you don't want to have to have a rescue team, um, you know, available and don't want to have your own in-house rescue team or have to have a contractor there standing by, depending on the, the level of risk, um, reclassification is the way to go.
Uh, oh if, yeah, yeah. If the space can be reclassified, if it has the um, if it has the potential for a hazardous atmosphere based on the work taking place inside the space, then you can't reclassify it. But um, you know, uh, and there was always the question. Um, I've written about this a number of times. Was could you use C five and C seven on the same entry into the same space? And when you look at the flow chart in 1910-146, um, it clearly shows that there is no correlation between using C5 and C7 together to be able to enter a confined space, uh, permit required confined space without without you know having a, issued a uh, an entry permit. But some folks will that that always comes up as well. I've got a hazardous atmosphere, so can I use controlled air? or forced air to control that hazardous atmosphere and then do C7 lock out all the, you know, the agitator blade and do my lockout on all my, um, on all my isolation points with either double block and bleed disconnect misalignment or, or um, um, blinding or blanking. And, you know, my answer was no, that was, you know, the C5 was meant to be its own scenario. C7 was meant to be its own scenario. If you can't, if C5 doesn't apply, C7 cannot apply, then you have to do a permitted entry. Those are the only three options. And they're they're in their own little silos, no pun intended, since we're talking about confined space. <laughs> that was there's, good. <laughs> there, there's not supposed to be any uh, correlation between C5 and C7 working together to do it. However, I, I say that, David, but when OSHA wrote the new confined space standard for construction, the way they worded it, um, you could make the argument that you can use, um, I think in uh, the construction standard, it's, uh, it's uh, 12.1204G is where they talk about reclassification, and I can't remember the other one, um, but it's in there. It's the same options. You can, uh, you know, use forced air ventilation to control an atmosphere, um, eliminate the hazards inside one that doesn't have a hazardous atmosphere, or do a permitted entry. But the way they worded it in the construction standard, um, it makes it seem as if we can use C5 to control the atmospheric hazard in the space, then use lockout to eliminate the internal hazards, the electromechanical hazards, and the two together would allow us not to have to have a permitted entry, which again means rescue wouldn't, wouldn't apply. Right, 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 right. You know, I just, uh, I never... I never got to that point. Like we did everything we could. Uh, we did forced, forced air, the double block and bleed. We were even pulling it like right from the rail, rail car itself. We disconnected that even and all of that stuff. And we never got the atmosphere down to a safe enough uh, level. You know, I think, I think we probably got it maybe to like a 0.5 or, or a one like PPMs, but that's mm -hmm. still pretty, pretty darn, pretty darn awful, you know, with, um, things there like chlorine and HCL and all that stuff then, you know, we just, we, we just never got it down good enough. So we did use a combination, but we still did the permit, of course, you know, in this whole thing. Yeah. 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 When, when, yeah, when you're doing those kind of things and you're doing it under permitted, you're, you're just doing those to try to improve safety right? Um, for the entrance. But, you know, if, if you can eliminate the hazards now, I will tell you this, that, um, you know, if if you really get into detail reading of 1910-146 and you get to the definition of what a hazardous atmosphere is, 
and you read the note underneath the definition, you know, a lot of people will argue with me that, um, well, if I'm doing asbestos work inside a confined space, that asbestos makes it permit required. And I'm like, absolutely, it does not. The only atmosphere that OSHA covers under 1910-146 are those acute atmospheres, which would render you from being able to perform self-rescue. So if you're inside a confined space and you're doing asbestos work, OSHA is not going to cite you under 1910-146 um, if the space is truly just a confined space. The asbestos does not make that confined space a permit required confined space because asbestos exposure is a chronic exposure. Uh -huh. So they would cite you under the asbestos standard, not the confined space standard. Oh, gotcha, so, gotcha. So, you know, when you're talking about people being exposed, um, you know, to a chemical and you're well below the PEL, that's not a hazardous atmosphere. And if it's, if you're being exposed over a PEL, but that's a chronic exposure uh, with a chronic consequence or a response, that is not covered under the confined space standard. And it's not to say that it's not a hazard and we don't need to address it, but, you know, asbestos is the example I give because everybody's familiar with it being, you know, a 20, 30 year um, latency period. Um, so, you, you know, doing asbestos work in a confined space, you've got to manage the asbestos. It's a hazard, but that work, that asbestos does not create a permit required confined space. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, oh, so, you know, when we're talking about, you know, what is a hazardous atmosphere, I mean, I know we only got 30 minutes, but I mean, I, I just did a class for, um, for a client not long ago on hazardous materials. And we talked about, you know, how much oxygen is in, is in the air. And, you know, I like to round up to 21%. Well, OSHA says if it's 19.5, then it's IDLH for oxygen deficiency. Well, between 21 and 19.5, if I, if I go from 20.9 down to 19.9, I have lost 1% of oxygen in that space. 19.9 is well above 19.5. Right, so I know right. a lot. I know a lot of entrance, uh, a lot of interest supervisors who would say, "Well, my meter says I'm at 19.9, I'm above 19.5, so I'm going to put you in that space." Oh, and man. I'm, I'm like, "No, no, no, no." And they're like, well, "What do you mean? It's 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 simple math." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, it is. But <laughs> right you've now. lost you've lost one percent of your oxygen. That means one percent is equal to ten thousand parts per million." You only have a meter that has four gases, oxygen, LEL, CO, uh, CO, and, you know, H2S. Right. If mm -hmm. it's another chemical in there, right, that you can't see, smell, taste, or feel, um, and it's at 10,000 parts per million, there's a ton of chemicals out there that have IDLHs well below 10,000 parts per million. Um, you could be putting someone into their grave. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I every program I've ever written, and I learned this in 1994, 95, when we were preparing for the, you know, putting in place the uh, OSHA standard. I think it came out in, officially in 96, but everybody in Petrochem was was doing some model of a confined space uh, entry program because um, it was such a recognized hazard. Right. And, you know, we were basically going, OK, OSHA is going to say 19.5 to 23.5. And that's that's the back, you know, bare minimums, we're going to go 20 to 22. 
is our is our range for oxygen. And if it's if it's not between 20 and 22, the entry supervisor cannot issue the permit. A safety engineer would have to leave the, come from the safety group and fully understand the you know intricacies of 100% volume of air and what's the makeup of that air and what does 1% of oxygen you know, you're still above the IDLH for oxygen deficiency, but you've lost 1% of oxygen. There's something in that space. You didn't, you're not, you're not running 99% volume. There's still a hundred percent volume of air. You've exactly. just changed the makeup. Right. Um, and we did the same for uh, LEL. Um, I, I'm just amazed the number of interest supervisors who've been doing it for 20 years and they don't understand the correction calculation on an LEL meter. And, you know, they say, well, the meter says 9%. My program and permits say as long as it's less than 10%, you can get in there. Well, you're going into a meter. Your, your meter was calibrated with methane as your cow gas. And in the back of that manual for that meter, there's a correction uh, table. And it says if your meters, if you calibrate with methane and you're, you're measuring for isobutane, you have to multiply the meter reading by 4.5. So you're not at 9%, you're at 36, 37%. Mm -hmm. But most people don't know the limitation of that LEL sensor. Um, and they just read the screen and say, well, the screen says nine, nine's less than 10. So here you go, I'm signing off, hop in there. And, you know, they're still a third of the, they're, they're a third of the way there instead of a 10th. Um, so they're not going to like blow themselves up. But the lack of knowledge um, of these interest supervisors and the limitations of the meters they're using is, you know, here we are in 2024 and we're still finding this on a regular basis is, is quite astounding. So oh, yeah. we, we never used 10% in our programs. We always used 2% because the highest correction calculation I ever saw, and maybe you've seen some higher was, you know, basically five you know, right, right under five. So if my program says 2% and the meter's reading 3%, the entry supervisor knows he or she can't authorize entry. They have to call the safety person. So the safety engineer from the safety group goes out and they understand why it's 2%, not 10%. But if it's at 2% and, the, and they're in the worst case scenario, the correction calculation is that five, well, they're still at 10% or less. They're never over 10%. Um, so we never allowed our program to say 10% of the LEL. We always said 2% of the LEL. Oh, okay. Um, Interesting. Uh, yeah. knock, on, knock on wood, I only had to tackle uh, like really awful super hazardous uh, chemicals and nothing that would get us burned. The only time I could think of a uh, LEL is that I was on a uh, a field construction crew and I think we went to Columbus, Ohio and working on sewers when we went down, you know, 20, 30 feet. That's when we would get about one or two percent. So I have almost zero experience when it comes down to like flammable stuff and all that, you know, for uh, yeah. confined space. But uh, yeah, you you were in my backyard. I'm in Cincinnati, so you were. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of work in that area, area too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so. Um, but luckily, luckily, I guess I just never had to really factor in all that. I know that it was always rare when it was over zero for us, you know, and that's when we 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 just like always knew, like, all right, there's something, 
something different, you know. And most of the time, when you work with the sewer, you can pretty much smell it. You're just kind of like, oh, so this is like an extra stinky batch, you know, here <laughs> that we're dealing with, you know. Yeah. So, uh, Brian, I hate to uh, cut you off because we are having a awesome talk, but we are bumping up against against time. Uh, I'd like to have you back, of course, obviously, for um, as far as I can tell, a part two, a part three, and a part four, if you're going to be uh, okay with that at some point in time there in the future. Uh, but I'd like to leave everybody with a way where they can sit down and catch up and uh, ask about any uh, questions they have um, about confined space and process safety management. Sure. So um, anybody can get a hold of me through my website um safetyeng.net that's s-a-f-p-e-n-g.net um you can also send me an email at brian spelled with a y b-r-y-a-n at safetyeng.net um you can also if you're a social media type person uh, i have a linkedin group um and i have a facebook group under the safety eng uh brand um, and that's, uh, I think we're about 6,000 in the safe, in the LinkedIn and a little over 7,000 on the Facebook. Um, and then of course, you know, email me, call me, text me. If you got questions, specific questions, um, about anything we talked about today. Awesome, Brian. Oh, and, uh, before that we go, thank you so much for running those two groups. I get a, I get a awful lot of uh, tips, tips and tricks from just sitting down and looking at the different questions and comments that other people put in. Uh, so it's, 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 it's really good that there's a lot of sharing that's going on out there. So thank you so yes. much, Brian, for doing that. So uh, it's my pleasure. Okay. Okay. And, uh, so uh, that is episode number 122 with Brian Haywood. Uh, everybody have a safe day.